So this is a, a, central, a central theme in the Buddha's teaching. And I think really all wisdom traditions is the, the cure for pain is in the pain. That as one uh, Rumi poem suggested when uh, there was a little conversation and one dervish to another uh, asked, you know, what's your vision of God's presence? And one says, well, there's a fire on the left and a lovely stream on the right. Those who, who go into the fire end up in the fountain. Those who, who love the water of pleasure end up in the, in the flames. So he says, finally, he says, if you're a friend of God, I, I will interchange truth. If you're a friend of truth, fire is your water. You should wish to have a hundred thousand set of moth wings so you can burn them one set a night. So, I don't know if that'll make you feel any better, but... <laughs> <laughs> but how do you feel when I talk about the cure for pain is in the pain? Because if you look at the awakening of the Buddha, today I was thinking about the awakening of a Buddha and what kept floating through my mind was the, were the words from Albert Camus, where he said, In the midst of winter, I discovered that there was within me an invincible summer. And really this speaks a lot to the awakening of the Buddha. It was very similar that after an arduous search, looking everywhere, looking within, looking without for a reliable refuge in a flash of insight, he realized that the, that the freedom, the, the sufficiency, the love, the acceptance, everything he had been looking for was none other than the very nature of the mind through which he was perceiving. He had seen, as some would describe, he had seen his own face. And it was the, he saw himself prior to any idea of himself, any story. And he saw, and all he could really see, as, he, as everything else seemed to, as James was describing last night, seemed to arise and pass away, all that was left really was, this, was the luminosity of the mind, the innate luminosity. Luminous is the mind, brightly shining. So why didn't he talk about this right away? Why didn't he tell everyone the good news? Why didn't he say, you, just as you are here, right as you are here right now, are innately free, You, right now, unless you consult your memory, have absolutely no limits, no bondage. There's no inside, there's no outside. You are, right now, before you can think, and even including when you think, you're free. Your mind has absolutely, is untouched by whatever visits. A student of, that I've worked with for many years wrote this about you, about everyone, about the nature of awareness. He said, awareness is not affected by its contents. The awareness of fire is not hot. The awareness of light is no brighter than the awareness of darkness. The awareness of a star is no larger than the awareness of a molecule. The awareness of fear isn't itself afraid. The awareness of anger isn't angry. And the awareness of suffering does not itself suffer. This is a truth that is of tremendous psychological importance. What it means that for all of us, no matter how much pain or trauma we've experienced, there is some part of us that has never been touched by any of it. That is why experienced meditators often refer to awareness as a secure or reliable refuge. 
And this is for my friend's spirit. This is from Noshul Ken Rinpoche, a Tibetan teacher. It says, profound and tranquil, free from complexity, uncompounded luminous clarity, beyond the mind of conceptual ideas. This is the depth of the mind of the Buddhas. In this there is nothing to be removed, nor anything that needs to be added. It is merely the immaculate looking looking naturally at itself. So the Buddha realized this, and the, our practice points to recognize the, re, recognizing this ourselves. Ajahn Mahab, Mahabua said, although all phenomena, everything that we experience, without exception falls, fall under the laws of impermanence, unsatisfactoriness or unreliability, and is not self, everything that comes and goes. The true nature of the mind does not fall under these laws. The natural power of the mind itself is that it knows and does not die. This deathlessness is something that is beyond disintegration. This is who and what what you are right now profound and tranquil, the mind of the Buddha. Because this is what we realize on present evidence. When we're sitting here and we don't, we don't add the name in our mind of I'm a, whatever my role is, I'm a person, I'm a man, I'm a woman, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm having a bad time. When all that is quiet for a moment, what do we experience? What are we? When, what can you say about yourself if you don't look back and you don't look ahead? What, what do we say? We can say is, essentially, I'm, I'm awake. And is there any limit to that? Any? So this is what the Buddha realized to some degree, and I'm just speculating. I, I can't say for sure, but I have, a, I have some confidence that this is what he recognized. And it was so clear that, um, that after all that wandering around, he realized that to be free, he simply had to kind of turn the other way and look, look at his own, look within the nature of his own mind. Why didn't he say that right off the bat? Share the good news. I'm curious, any of you have any ideas? Anybody willing to say, speak into the silence? Please. Um, It wouldn't be believable. believable. It's interesting that you say that. Because the Tibetan teachings have this uh, teaching called the four faults means why we don't recognize that. Why don't we ro- don't recognize it? It says it's too close. It's too vast. It's too wondrous. And it's too easy. We can't possi- possibly believe that nirvana or freedom is the nature of our minds. And I think the Buddha knew that. That we could not possibly believe that it's as easy as, as seeing our face right now. And that in spite of all the present evidence, not one person here, no matter how uncomfortable, when you really look right now, not one person here can find, in the immediate present, can find the one who is um, problematic, the one who's suffering, the one who's not enough, the one who's, you know, everything that we tell ourselves. All we can find here is that profound, what was that line? That uncompounded, luminous clarity. Just aware. So the Buddha saw that um, after he surveyed, at least as the story goes, as he surveyed the world with his eye of wisdom, after he woke up, he thought that 
that uh, what he realized, because it was so close, so vast, so wondrous, in some ways so easy once he saw the obvious truth that freedom is the nature of our mind, he didn't think anybody could get it. But then he saw that there were those, and I include all of us, I think we're, we're included in this club, there were those with just a little bit of dust on their eyes. And he especially thought of his ascetic friends who were very sincere in their practice, but had really kind of gone off the rails, starving themselves, doing self-mortification practices and making themselves really sick and tired and unable to practice at all. And he saw that their sincerity of heart, uh, if they were just pointed in the right direction, they would, they would uh, realize uh, the, what's that natural peace that's, um, that is the natural state of our mind. And so he sought out his, uh, his old ascetic friends and he told them basically what had happened to him, what he saw. And you know, the way that he saw it was him just wandering around using his, as James mentioned last night, using his fathom long body. And this is where that pithy teaching came where he said, within this fathom long body with its perceptions and inner sense, lies the world. So if it wasn't for this body, no world. We, don't, we could not explore the Dharma. So this is why it's so much about an in-the-body experience. Um, but with his body, with his senses wide open, he wandered around and he saw somebody his own age who was quite ill. That freaked him out. He'd been somehow blind to that fact that there's that uh, you could be really ill and 29 years old. Then he saw an extremely old person. Somehow he'd been oblivious to the fact of aging. And then he saw a corpse, a a dead person. And then he saw um, a mendicant, a monastic, somebody who's kind of going against the stream of what everybody else was doing. And that kind of piqued his interest. But it was especially the sickness and the old age and the death, sometimes called the first three heavenly messengers, that shook him up. That, that it is said that in a, in a flash, in a moment, his pride in youth, which is natural to have when you're 29, his pride in health, natural to have when you're 29, and his pride in life just melted away. He saw that, the, that this kind of pride in, in youth, in uh, health and in life was a misplaced, we put, have misplaced faith in this, um, in this domain of experience. And it left him with, a, with a, a deep realization, as James spoke of last night, that everything that has the nature to arise has the nature to pass away. He later shared in his teaching that if we really realized the extent, the depth of meaning in whatever has the nature to arise has the nature to pass away, this will bring great happiness. Because this is the springboard, opening to this truth is the springboard to letting go of the usual usual preoccupations, the usual fixations that we get involved in, trying to keep ourselves young, beautify ourselves to... I, I used to read this article about this salon in um, New York City where people came to get their injections of, of human growth hormone and, and the people looked strangely tight in their skin. And you know, I don't know how many of you saw the movie Brazil, but they, it's a kind of parody on our, our, beautif- our excessive beautification. The, a woman has so many facelifts that her face is stretched so tight that it finally kind of bursts. And, and so all pointing, trying to point out this, uh, just the amount of mi- how many mind moments are spent in the pursuit of something that is so utterly unreliable. So in the Buddha's case, he saw, you know, I'm going to get old. I'm going to get sick. I'm going to die. And, and then he realized, wow, everything that I've been chasing after, 
everything that I've held near and dear will I'll lose. Uh, everything that uh, you know, there's n- nothing in this world is is uh, if I put my faith in anything, any particular experience, I, I'm not going to be very happy. There's a famous little inscription written on the wall of a cave in Thailand by a, a yogi who was in the cave, and he said, "Oh, what a joy!" to realize there's no happiness in this world. <laughs> now, of course there's happiness in this world. But the happiness, what the Buddha called Lokiya Sukha, the worldly happiness, is really subsumed under the umbrella of what he called Dukkha. Dukkha means unreliable in this case. Actually, the cause of stress if we, if we put our faith in it. The cause of, a, of what seems like for many of us, we tend to live our life in a state of suspended happiness, always looking for the next experience. So the Buddha realized the unreliability of this and, and then fortunately he saw that, that uh, monk and got the inspiration to, to go against the stream and he started practicing and, and he turned inward, tried seclusion, and experienced the wonders of a mind that is well collected and composed, the wonders of a calm abiding, the wonders of a mind that experienced temporarily a a feeling of unmixed happiness. No hindrances, no, no, nothing in the mind that wants anything to be different than the way it is. And, And he said, wow, this is, this is happy beyond anything I've known before. All the, all the uh, wine, song, all the sense pleasures, I've, that, just, that was pale compared to this joy, this happiness of a well-collected mind. But then he also saw that the well-collected mind, this beautiful unmixed happiness, this deep absorption and concentration, this seclusion. And the reason I keep putting my hands next to my ears is on the uh, last retreat I, I led here at Spirit Rock, one of the yoga teachers was teaching a yoga practice where you cover your ears if you get really overwhelmed. You cover your ears and then you do what's called ujjaya breath and you just listen to that breath. And it kind of pulls you inward. And it's, it's a beautiful thing to have that kind of seclusion. But he saw that even those beautiful experiences that can come, as useful as they are, as much as they harmonize our mind and body, that they, that they were also subject to change and unreliability. And so then that's, that was the pinnacle of what was being taught at the time of his, of his life. And so then he... He, that's when he went out on his own and he, he started to pay attention in the same way that we have here, using the, po- using the power of concentration to be at least in the same, have his attention in the same location in his, as his body. And then he started to examine, to inquire, to look into in that silent, silent meditative way, so different from our normal analytic mind, pay attention to the flow of experience. And he discovered just the same as, as uh, what Tom Moon described in that piece on the immortality of awareness. He saw that the, everything that was happening in his body was of the nature to change. Everything happening in the moods, everything happening in the, in the thoughts and the images and the sounds, every experience was coming and going. And the more he saw how much it came and went, he stopped trying to have more of the pleasant push away more of the unpleasant, stopped reacting so much, stopped getting into the great pursuit of being any different than the way he was because the more he relaxed, the happier he got. The more he fell into the, a, a different kind of joy, the joy of equanimity, the joy of a mind that's not reacting so much, that's not pushing, not pulling, that can sit right in the middle of pleasure and pain, and be, in some way, 
untouched by it, just luminous as the mind, brightly shining, and is untouched by whatever visits. This the yogi, as James shared, this the yogi understands, so therefore there's cultivation of the mind. So this turning of his mind that came from the cessation of, of his pride in youth and pride in health and pride of life, it just completely turned his understanding about where a sense of relief and happiness and freedom is to be found. And he found that it was none other than his own face. But he didn't think anybody could get it, but he thought his ascetic friends could. And so he went to talk to them. And he, he shared with them the same things that shook him up, the same things that woke him up. He said, if you're born in this world, anything that is born into this world, what comes with the territory is the stress, is stress, is, is a life that has elements that are really difficult to bear. This is the first thing he's talked about. This was the good news. (laughs) That if you're born, it is the number one leading cause of death. (laughs) That was not original, by the way. (laughs) It's also the leading cause of of, um, sickness, of aging, of dying, of death. It is the leading cause of not getting what you want sometimes and not wanting what you get. It's the leading cause of grief. And that list, that traditional list, grief, lamentation, uh, loss. Um, this comes with the territory. This is not an aberration. This is how it is. And he not only told his friends that this is how it is, that there are three kinds of what are called three kinds of dukkha. There is what he called dukkha dukkha, which is everything I just described. Just the garden variety that anybody who is born experiences. Birth, sickness, old age, death, etc. Then there is the, the dukkha or the, the stress of, of impermanence and change. Anicca dukkha, it's called. And finally, there is the, just the stress of being awake and alive. That our senses are continually being impinged upon by sights and sounds and smells and tastes and the demands of our life. It is, there's a kind of relentlessness to our existence that can be felt as a kind of um, impingement, as something painful that's and it's not always, it's not as easy as we like to imagine that it would, um, that it would be. And why did he say this to start out with? I'll just give you a little hint by, that tells you everything about the direction of the teaching by what his prescription was for dealing with this fact. Because not only did he offer the diagnosis, but he offered a prescription. And his prescription for dealing with everything that comes with being born, getting sick, getting old and dying, and all the other dissatisfaction is welcome it, open to it. And that the fruit of, of your practice will be to be able to say, yes, I've, I've opened to it. That's a, that is the... the third um, aspect of the first noble truth, the truth of stress, suffering, the diagnosis, the prescription, open to it. The fruit, the cure is to be able to say, I've, I've sat in the middle of it. Because if we don't sit in the middle of it, if we don't open to it, and we have innumerable strategies as you probably saw today. How many times did you head for tea? How many times did you just race up the mountain? How many times did you... One of the most obvious things that shows up on retreat are, and hopefully you'll find a sense of humor with this, is all our strategies not to feel things. 
And our mind is really clever. My mind used to just, I'd look around my room that I would be, I often did a lot of my practice in my room. And when it seemed too intense, as sometimes the practice would open up so much that I would feel very young and regressed and I, I'd mostly like I needed to be held. And rather than feel that initially, I would think about the, clothes hanging on my rack and buying more and in some other color. And my mind would just go off. And this is the wanting mind. This is the hindrance of wanting. Our mind that tells us that something will make us happier than we are. And of course, sometimes we do get what we want and we feel a sense of relief. And then we think, oh, that thing made me happy. But usually what makes us happy is that we're no longer caught in that belief that something will make me happier. It's one of my favorite teachers, Nisargadatta, said, nothing can make you happier than you are, fundamentally. That all search for happiness is misery and leads to more misery. That the only happiness worth that name is the natural happiness of being awake, conscious. So what's on your list of What's come up on your list of what would make you happier than you are here? I know for many of you it was planning your escape. For anybody willing to say what, what was on the playing list? Music playing music in a band? Yeah. That might make you happy. No. <laughs> <laughs> what else? Any, anyone else? Building a different house. <laughs> now we're getting far from the retreat, aren't we? <laughs> Just, for Just for a little while. Anyone else willing to say wh- where you're? Not Please. Sitting. Not sitting. Aha. Uh-huh. Sleeping all day. Sleeping all day. Eating. Eating. Yeah, the best, the best time of the day, the highest form of entertainment. Please. Dessert, uh-huh. <laughs> Deep deprivation, please. Getting on, a golf course. Getting on a golf course. I can relate to that. So isn't it interesting, though, when the wanting mind is present? What happens to the present moment? The only moment that we have. Everything else other than here is completely imaginary. What happens when we're, our mind is projecting its well-being into, onto the golf course or into the house? We miss life. We miss life. We, and we literally put our minds and our bodies into a state of suspended happiness, into a state of tension into a state of, of saying to ourselves, literally entrancing ourselves into the belief that um, I can't really completely relax until the, the house is built, I'm on the course, dinner, I'm back with my band, I'm having dessert. And then we have dessert and we feel better, we do whatever it is. And we realize there's a whole... We're living in an in a mind-created state of bondage. So on the retreat, we call this the, we call this the, we, this is part of the list of what we call the five hindrances. These are five mental states that when unnoticed, torment us into thinking that the present moment is, uh, and, and the extension of it is not only the present moment is enough, but we're not enough. So it builds a sense of insufficiency, of lack. Another translation for hindrance is lack. Now it's interesting how when we don't use our um, mind, these stories, or we don't consult our memory or our plans, when we are really simply present, it's hard to find any lack. There's just basically six experiences. There's seeing, there's hearing, there's smelling, there's tasting, there's touching, you know, feeling through the body. There's thinking, 
Where's the lack right now? But yet our mind can just spin out and it does it very innocently because we've mostly associated our well-being with getting what we want. And one of the main phenomena, and I say this because I know that there are about 65 people here who have not done a, a residential retreat, but most of you have heard about this or heard about the hindrances, of course. But there is a phenomena that I've participated in as a yogi and I've both worked with people. It's called the VR, which is called, which means Vipassana romance, where someone triggers a, uh, in you, and th- this gives me an opportunity to talk about how our mind springs into action, how we get so far removed from that effulgence of being present, from that Buddha nature that is always free. How, do we, how does that happen in a moment? This is really what the Buddha talked about in the second noble truth. What causes us to so, so compulsively go out of ourselves in search for relief? What is that? Well, it turns out that every experience we have has a has a feeling tone that comes with it. And we'll start to open, we'll just invite you not to turn it into, don't be too fierce about this in your practice, but, but start to notice in general what's the feeling tone accompanying the experience you're having. Now, even right now, even listening right now, don't tell me what you're feeling, but, but listening right now, it's likely that just listening is, is accompanied in your mind with a feeling tone of it's either pleasant or it's unpleasant or it's neutral. Neither pleasant or unpleasant. And it turns out that the way that our minds work, and this is something that we can discover for ourselves, and why we want to discover it because by discovering it, we, it starts to open up a space of choice, whether we want to just be carried along by a stream of this kind of endless searching everywhere but here. So it's very useful to begin to understand how do we get so far from ourselves? It turns out that when we experience something that's associated with a pleasant feeling, very quickly there's a little charge in our mind. And that charge is, we call it, uh, liking. So innocent, so natural, like something pleasant. And when it's unpleasant, there's not liking. And I'm sure you had some liking today and some not liking. Anybody have any knee pain? Did you notice any not liking? Well, often the unpleasant, or in this case, the pleasant isn't noticed. And I'll use the, the VR as my example. A thought arises in the mind of, of, uh, well, I see someone on the retreat. I like their, their um, sandals. I like their something about them, the way they walk, the way they eat, whatever it might be. And it produces in my heart a pleasant feeling. And it doesn't stop there, especially if this has not been noticed very carefully. It doesn't stop there. It's followed by Wanting. And wanting is then followed by craving. And then it's that classic sense, I want it, I need it, I've got to have it. And the way it works with a VR is your mind, because of the pressure that's building from being in a state of suspended happiness, being in a state of wanting, which we don't normally notice the feeling, we're usually caught in the pleasantness of the image of what we want. And that image is just this torrent of fantasy about dating, mating, marriage, travel, depending on what age you are, children. Maybe even it goes so far as divorce because it gets so exhausting. (laughs) But all this happens in the span of a few minutes maybe even quicker. And we, we can't believe that it's, that it's 
that it's not that person that we need, but we need to return to this vital, inexhaustible resource of healing and freedom. We need to return to ourselves. And the same goes with the, what's called the Vipassana Vendetta, where somebody triggers your, some, not, some not liking, and then followed by aversion, and then hatred, and, and then it, sometimes it's notes to the cooks, sometimes it's notes to the teacher, sometimes it's, it's just blaming everything and everyone for... And it's never the neighbor problem. It's always that we have left that vital present. We've left that pure awareness. We've left the, the real source of relief. And we've gone out and believe that the best is yet to come. So how do we deal with that on the retreat, just as long as we're talking about the hindrances? Because we, one of my teachers, I don't remember who it was now, said that that the practice is the hindrances. Or one said that the practice is easy, it's just the hindrances that are difficult. But the hindrances of desire and aversion, they are going to present themselves in our mind. They will cloud your perception. So you will feel aversive and you will feel that quality of grasping. Every single person does. But the invitation here is to, one, to normalize that this is what our minds do. They react to the pleasant with grasping, the unpleasant with, with aversion, and they react to the, to the neutral by spacing out, by not seeing, by falling into ignorance, by getting lost in a little story of ourselves. It's an example you could say is, I always think of this because it's a a relatively neutral experience. When you breathe in and when you breathe out, since we've been using the anchor of the breath, there's a feeling tone that's associated with the in-breath and the out-breath. And it's usually either pleasant or unpleasant, and so it, it generally keeps us engaged. And the pleasant and the unpleasant can very much keep us engaged. And so it it actually enhances our wakefulness, enhances our sense of being present. But then there's often a space between the breaths. After the out-breath and, the, and before the next in-breath. And that space, it's not, there's not as much texture to that space. It's kind of neutral. And if you hang out in that neutral space and you really explore it and open to the neutral, then you you're actually nurturing the seeds of, of equanimity, of balance, of impartiality, of openness. But if it goes unnoticed, we just, it's, we get bored or space out. It's not interesting enough. So that's why part of our instructions, I think I may have said it once in here, is don't just notice the feeling of the breath in and out, but also rest your attention either in your body or in that space. Just hang out there because it will actually nurture being able to sit in the middle of it all. Because that's really the, the aim of our practice is being able to meet the, as the Zen tradition says, the 10,000 joys and the 10,000 sorrows. So what we do with the, with the grasping and aversion is we notice there's often a story, there's the fantasy, there's the... There's the case for the prosecution against ourselves or against another person. It's one or the other. And, you know, my fantasy of... I have, you know, I've been... I've really lost many times where I've ended up having a fantasy, a desire, and and it's ended up literally pulling me out of retreat. And I ended up driving once 40 miles away to uh, watch a sporting event because I thought that would make me happier than I was. So if you think you're the only one that's really mentally ill here, you know, looking, <laughs> looking for love everywhere else, you're not alone. It's just, it's just what we do. So there will be a little story of what you need to be happy or what you need to get rid of to be happy. And what we do is we notice that, but we expand beyond the story. In fact, in a sense, we withdraw our attention. We, we bow to the story of it but we withdraw our attention from that and instead feel we use the energy 
of wanting. We use it as our, as Trungpa Rinpoche, a Tibetan teacher says, as our manure of Bodhi. We use it as our path. We use this state that's born of confusion as our, as our doorway of awakening. So we feel that feeling of aversion, even when you are sure that somebody else is the cause of your suffering. Instead, you, you actually feel that state of aversion and you recognize wh- how it feels. You investigate its quality. It burns, it stabs, or it's tight, or whatever it is. You notice what happens to it. You want to know whether that feeling gets stronger, whether it stays the same, whether it changes into some other feeling. And then you will likely notice whether, whether that person who you hate has changed or whether that person who you want you ever get. You'll, you'll often notice if you bring attention to these states of mind that they're just like weather fronts. They come and they go. And if you really... Um, sincere about this, you will save yourself a lot of postponement, a lot of suffering, a lot of suspended happiness by just simply feeling the state of mind that's present. So we try to make, put everything to good use that comes into your mind, even these very, uh, what can be when they go unnoticed, very tormenting. Just to finish out the, the other three hindrances that tend to hypnotize us into thinking that this is not the place where we can find relief. Freedom is not the nature of our own minds. The the third one is uh, sloth and torpor, dullness, just kind of the foggy mind that just just feels like, feel like a slug. And sometimes that's that's just a, a mental state that has nothing to do with being tired. It's just not just don't want to experience life. The interesting thing is that we can pay attention to that state. And sometimes, especially when it doesn't have to do with being tired uh, or exhausted, sometimes just by noticing it, by feeling that heaviness, that cloudiness, that, that weight, that the quality in our mind, sometimes just the noticing of it, it, it bursts. But if you continually act out, you know, you feel a little dull, you think, oh, it's time to take a nap, then you may deprive yourself of, of, of uh, having available, uh, available a whole new resource of energy and not have to nap in order to get it. Now, sometimes, of course, it is about exhaustion. Sometimes it's, it's an imbalance between energy and tranquility, as we talked about. When tranquility is high and energy is low, we tend to get droopy. So you can work with it in that way as well. But often this is a state that just doesn't, makes us unable to really see very clearly. And, and then we can, after we get a little bit dull, then we, our mind gets a little bit weak and then we just start going on to the next, one of the next ones. We start uh, getting agitated and worried and restless. And, oh, I'm not getting anywhere here. This practice isn't working and that's, then I'm starting to move into doubt. So we've got sloth and torpor, we have restlessness and agitation, and we have doubt. And each of these may come with a little story. The story of, of restlessness and agitation is often a story of worry. We get very anxious, restless, agitated when we've, when we've associated our well-being with, with how things turn out. We get so caught in that dream in our mind of... of I am somebody in, our, in my mind. I'm somebody who's going through this and I'm hoping that it turns out well for me. And Really nothing's happened. I'm just here having experiences. But my mind projects this whole drama. And then there's always that uncertainty that it may not turn out the way I want it to. This retreat may not work out. I may not, I may not uh, achieve what I wanted to achieve. And as soon as that uncertainty enters the mind, we start to feel more agitated, restless. So there's all kinds of stories that can be associated with restlessness, worry, regret, guilt, 
lots of stories of trying to fix the future, which is unborn, doesn't even exist, fix the past, which is gone. And that leaves us in a state of, of agitations. So sometimes there's a story. And so we notice the story, but we mostly come out of the story, we feel it through the body. And the very feeling, not always easy to ride the, the bronco of, of restlessness and agitation, but we, we, try to, we try to create a lot of space in our mind. Uh, using that old Zen expression, the way to control a cow is to give it a big pasture. We try to create some space and feel that. Ah, restless, agitated. Meanwhile, we've come out of that, that narrative that just keeps spinning the idea that the future is going to make me happier than I am. It's, it's a distortion. It's a lie. Nothing can make you happier than you are. What happens when you give up the idea of a better past or a better future right now? What's there? What's left? Anybody willing to say? Now. now. What else? What, is, what do you experience now? Spaciousness. What's that? Spaciousness. Spaciousness. Everything. Cont- contentment, everything. Peace. Yeah. So we didn't... We didn't uh, all we did was for a moment uh, suspend the trance of the hindrances. And space is there, open, inviting. And then doubt, of course, the, the story of doubt is so diminishing. It's so, and it can start with just a little knee pain. I've got knee pain and a little th- unpleasant react. The pressure of it spawns a little story. Oh, I always get knee pain on retreat. You know, it, I realize every time I do anything, it's, something happens to derail it. Everybody else is getting enlightened and I'm miserable. <laughs> you know, it can get so far and we, we literally think that we're hearing the truth in our mind and we're hearing a description of somebody who doesn't even exist. It's an imaginary me. And what's, what's being left and missing? What's, what's lost in that story? You, the Buddha, right here. As, as uh, William Blake says, who you are, shout so loud, I can't hear what you say. So the Buddha saw that this movement, this state of craving, this state of becoming, was often the way that we that is born of not really opening to life as it's presenting itself, which has all these stresses. And so our mind goes out and we actually think that there is a place that uh, will give us relief when the relief is sitting right in the middle of it. As one person wrote in a story that we all tend to fall into what's called the 84th problem. What's the 84th problem? This is how someone tells the story of the 84th problem. Once a farmer went to tell the Buddha about his problems, told the Buddha about his troubles farming, how either droughts or monsoons made his work difficult. He told the Buddha about his wife, how even though he loved her, there were certain things about her he wanted to change. Likewise with his children, yes, he loved them, but they weren't turning out quite the way he wanted. When he was finished, he asked how the Buddha could help him with his troubles. The Buddha said, I'm sorry, I can't help you. What do you mean, railed the farmer? You're supposed to be a great teacher. The Buddha replied, sir, it's like this. All human beings have 83 problems. It's a fact of life. Sure, a few problems may go away now and then, but soon enough others will arise. So we'll always have 83 problems. The farmer responded indignantly. So what's the good of all your teaching? The Buddha replied, 
My teaching can't help with the 83 problems, but it can help with the 84th problem. What's that, asked the farmer. The 84th problem is we don't think we should have any problems. (laughs) So because of this mistaken perception that we shouldn't have any problems, this unwillingness to open to the joys and the sorrows, we we wander in endless search for a, a future that never arrives, overlooking the fact that time and freedom, happiness is only and always now. As the Dalai Lama put it, when asked what surprised him most about humanity, he said, man, because he sacrifices his health in order to make money. Then he sacrifices money to recuperate his health. And then he's so anxious about the future, he does not enjoy the present. The result being that he does not live in the present or the future. He lives as if he's never going to die. And then he dies having never really lived. And Alexis de Tocqueville in in 1700 or something said, in America I've seen the freest and best educated people in the circumstances the happiest to be found in the world. Yet it seemed to me that a cloud habitually hung on their brow and they seemed almost sad in their pleasure because they never stopped thinking of the good things they have not yet got. Or as Bo Lozoff says, it's time that we stop trying to keep up with the Joneses and see that the Joneses are not happy. (laughs) So the cause of the second truth, the cause of suffering, the cause of stress, is that tendency of mind that deeply conditioned tendency of mind that we can use in our practice, the deeply conditioned tendency of mind to want things other than they are. That expresses itself as that desire for pleasure, the desire to make things stop, desire, it's sometimes called the desire for non-becoming. The extreme version is the, the suicidal impulse. It's an extreme aversion to things as they are the desire to become someone, to be in a state of, 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 of uh, being on the move, always turning the present moment, as Eckhart Tolle puts it, into a pass-through on our way to someplace else, or as an obstacle, or as the enemy, not, mi- not realizing that, um, that this is all we have. And the Buddha's prescription for this diagnosis of what causes suffering is this state of craving, this state of wanting, and the flip side aversion. His prescription was to abandon the cause, to let go, as James spoke of last night. As Ajahn Chah put it, if, to, if you let go a little, you'll have a little peace. If you let go a lot, you'll have a lot of peace. And if you let go completely, you'll have complete peace and freedom. Your struggles with the world will come to an end. doesn't mean the world comes to an end. The world of your imagination comes to an end in that moment. Remember the, the quote, within this fathom-long body, with its perceptions and inner sense lies the world, lies the cause of the world, the cause of the world, that, those phantasmagorical dramas that we create of the imagined person that imagined version of ourselves. All happening through this body lies the cause of the world. And then he says, in this fathom-long body with its perceptions and inner sense lies the end of the world. The cessation of all that drama. So his third truth says there's an end to suffering. This mental suffering that's constantly in contention with reality. That's trying to get somewhere. (coughs) And the prescription for for dealing with this third truth, this end of suffering, is to realize it. Is to, is to let go and feel that joy of letting go. To meet, and it's in the moment-to-moment experience, it's as simple as just uh, meeting your life just as it is. This moment, right where life touches you. 
as David White wrote in his poem, enough, enough. These words are enough. If not these words, this breath. If not this breath, this sitting here. This opening to the life we have refused again and again until now. So one has to be able to say this has been, the cessation of grasping, the cessation of suffering has been realized. And it starts with just simple moments of, of mindful attention. Mindful attention is synonymous with letting go. It, is, it, is impo- it does not coexist with grasping. That's why as James made that gesture, how it purifies the unwholesome, how it cultivates the wholesome, because that moment of mindfulness is really synonymous with non-greed, with, with non-grabbing, non-condemning, and non-confusion. We're no longer in that confused version of ourselves. We're no longer in a state of suspended happiness. So it may not seem like much when you simply put one foot in front of the other and you feel it, or you feel the breath, or you hear the sounds, or you're simply aware of being aware. But that moment is a cessation. It's a little mini nirvana. And you have to, you, you can say with confidence, for at least for that moment, this has been realized. And of course, the fourth truth is that there's a path. There is, and of course, our confusion is our path. All our states, that's what we travel. There really is no path because freedom surrounds you every instant. But what we call the path is everything that we have to deal with that clouds our perception. All the hindrances, desire, aversion, restlessness, sloth and torpor, doubt, all the torments, all the difficulty of being human. This is our path. And it starts with the with our, what's in our mind, what's in our speech, what's in our actions. We st- it, it, uh, it proceeds with the navigator, the center being this mindful attention, and it, and it culminates with, uh, with, with wisdom. And it moves naturally into wise intention to renounce that which uh, causes suffering, to give oneself, to give one's heart to all beings. It culminates at seeing that nothing exists independently apart from anything else. And that we are, in fact, resting in that which we have been searching for. So I'll end with a, a poem from the Northwest Native American tradition called Lost. Stand still. The trees ahead and bushes beside you are not lost. Whether you, wherever you are is called here. And you must treat it as a powerful stranger must ask permission to know it and be known. Listen. The forest breathes. It whispers. I have made this place around you. If you leave it, you may come back again, saying, Here. No two trees are the same to ravens. No two branches the same to wren. If what a tree or a bush does is lost on you, then you are surely lost. Stand still. The forest knows where you are and you must let it find you.
may all beings realize the truth of suffering, the cause of suffering, the end of suffering, and the path leading to the end of suffering here and now. Thank you. Have about 25 minutes for walking practice, then we'll have a little sit and. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.